0: Welcome to the podcast. We have a great show for you today. We're gonna be talking a little bit about Thanksgiving because it's Thanksgiving week and uh, jumping into a whole lot of news. We're gonna talk about booster shots, a huge flu outbreak, Russia shooting down satellites, the Rittenhouse trial and how pinch to zoom is being called into question, a breakthrough genome project and how chips shortages are going to impact gift giving. All this and more coming up on the Sunday brunch. Enjoy. Welcome to the Sunday Brunch of Weekly News Show, where we ask the big questions on the week's tech, science, and medicine. I am one of your hosts, Matt, and I am joined every day by my good friend and co-host, Dr. Marty. It is Thanksgiving week, and I think we have to kick off by what are your plans,
1: my friend? Um, I am going to do a Friendsgiving this year. Uh, We're going to go drive to Palm Springs and spend it with, uh, there's a bunch of us that get together and... It's going to be kind of a low key, but awesome. We're all pretty good in the kitchen. Uh, you know, that kind of, it's, it's still, I don't want to travel on Thanksgiving. And considering Thanksgiving travel last year is what gave me COVID, that I'm kind of averse to that still. So I'm, I'm looking to just kind of hang out, drivable space, people who are mostly to themselves, and enjoy it with friends. How about yourself? Well, I do. can, can I ask a question about your Friendsgiving?
0: You may. So what's the logistics on this? Are you bringing ingredients? Are you packing your Instapot with you? Uh, are you are you just buying stuff when you arrive? How, how, how does
1: this thing work? So probably I will go shopping ahead of time. Uh, we'll ask them to get some things and I will bring some things. Uh, they're going to be working. They're both in healthcare. And so the, the, the house we're going to. So they're in healthcare. So they're gonna be working on Thursday. And so me and my buddies are going to be doing the cooking on Thursday. So we'll probably split up the list of the halves and halves, but everybody's from a very different, you know, tradition and makes stuff that's really different from each other. So um, there'll be an eclectic, it'll be an eclectic thing. And so we'll probably have people get the stuff that they make themselves. And do
0: you, are you going to prepare a signature dish? Like what is your go-to, I have to have this during Thanksgiving, besides turkey, you can't, you can't pick that one.
1: Do you want to know, I know what
0: my signature dishes?
1: I, I, we all want to know. Uh, I have one that's always given. It is one of the most important parts of any Thanksgiving meal. Is my famous matzo ball soup. Ooh. It's really good. I have never had it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. It is really good. One of these days I'll make it for you. I think the last time I, I brought you store-bought store brought matzo ball soup that you ended up feeding me when I was very ill <laughs> visiting you. <laughs> I, I think I had one matzo ball. It was, it, it was, it was very good. Um, but I never, I never made it
0: for you. No, no. You, you bought it once and yeah, you had it cause you weren't feeling good. And then I had a small bowl of it. It, it was, it was very good though.
1: Yeah. I'm, I will make some for you at some point. Um, the other thing I started to do is I have a signature salad that I found online, of course, somewhere. Um, but it's a um, it's a pomegranate persimmon salad oh, okay. uh, with feta and uh, an arugula. It's a good one. Uh, I I also like making mashed parsnips because although I do like mashed potatoes, I like doing a non dairy version of it, which I know you can do with with um, uh, with mashed potatoes as well. But with a mashed parsnip, you can do an olive oil. That's kind of um, a, like you, you can you can uh, kind of immerse uh, the olive oil with sage and give it that flavor and then blend that with some, some roasted parsnips and make a mashed parsnip. And that's really a nice dish too. It's like a mashed potato with a lot more sweetness and cool flavors. So I have a bunch of things I like to make. The turkey is a turkey. I always like turkey. Um, oh, I want to make a good cranberry sauce also. Um, I have, I, I put like cardamom in it, which is a okay. nice, an orange, cardamom and orange in my cranberry sauce. Don't, I'm not a cranberry sauce fan
0: though. Ugh. I, I always knew I didn't like it Ugh.
1: What Ugh. is wrong with you?
0: I don't like it. I also don't like uh, pumpkin pie, which we've talked about. I'm not a fan of yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, my parents were a big fan of the canned cranberry that held its form. Oh yeah. I
1: love that form. Uh, yeah.
0: Not, not good. So I am so... I decided, in consultation with my husband, we decided we were going to host this year for the very first time. So it sounds really good, uh, and I'm not stressed about it. But just give me a couple more days, and then I'll start. I'll start panicking. It's only four people total, so I mean, it's not a big group. But I mean, there is a lot of pressure on the very traditional dishes. Like, like I was telling my husband, I go. I think Thanksgiving, at least in my opinion, is harder than Christmas because there's like weird rules. Like people expect like at least my family, they expect, you know, really good mashed potatoes. You expect turkey of a certain thing, you know, sweet potatoes, green bean casserole. We have all those things. So you're kind of, you know, on the hook to make sure you do all these traditional things well, you know, and you need rolls and you need pumpkin pie and you need whipped cream. So it's a very specific menu. And I feel like, you know, when we, we typically host like, you know, during Christmas, I can kind of pick and choose what dishes I want to do and I and I can insert
1: some variety in there. But Thanksgiving, man, it is a it is
0: a locked down menu.
1: I have to say that I like the um, eclectic components of it. I, I like a, a weird Thanksgiving, that makes me happy. But um, I tried bringing in some things that weren't very traditional to my parents one year. I think I tried making like, I figured, you know what, you, there's, this, there's this Persian rice rice dish called tadik, which is um, you, you essentially, you make a, a basmati rice, but uh, as you finish off the rice in a normal pot, you add oil to the sides of the pot and you turn the heat up and you put it on a diffuser so it cooks it evenly and it creates crispy rice it's like literally fried rice underneath the other rice and you put a stew on top of that as like an appetizer so i made a pretty good crispy rice this tadik and i just remember my whole family like sticking their fork at it and poking it <laughs> like what do we do with this where are the mashed potatoes I, where are the mashed potatoes What
0: is this foreign dish doing here? And it should be removed from the table immediately.
1: I know. I'm like, but the the point of this all is that it's supposed to be, you know, it's a time when people come together and celebrate so many different traditions, but no, you don't want to mash potatoes. So I had to deal with that. Yeah. I, you know, I grew up, we, we had a very set menu,
0: although I've gotten rid of the, did your mom ever do like those salads with like. Fruit suspended in them. That was a big deal for a while. Like our Thanksgiving, always had a couple of those fruit salads with like Jello. Yeah, it was like the Jello. But some of them were weird. Like some of them had. My mom made one that was orange Jello with, you know, the little baby oranges, and then you put whipped topping over over the top of it with shredded cheddar cheese. No. Yeah, and it was it was a traditional type. There was another one that was. What tradition is that? i don't know like i think thought it, of that as a tradition and actually it works it's not that bad i think it came from like 1970s like
1: it's fruit salad from the 70s yeah in, in and am my yeah we did have the jello molds but i am still trying to fathom the cheese on top of
0: jello it works cheddar cheese it, it works on top of the whipped topping there's something about it i can't explain it uh but we had that one. We also had another one uh, that had like baby marshmallows and like grapes, and it had a whip topping. It would turn out kind of purple. Uh, but that was another popular one too. So there was always sort of some sort of fruit coo whip
1: type salad kind of thing. So yeah, I, I don't, I do not do those. But no, thank you. Well, the, yeah. the Jello mold was a big thing of the '70s that carried into the, our childhoods, where you would see because it was so visually stunning. Of uh, yeah. this multi-colored, multi-layered thing that would be removed from the mold, and if you were really fancy, you had individual molds so that you'd have little individual Jello mold things. It's like a Jello village. It... <laughs> you get Jello, and you get Jello, and you get Jello. I don't know why it was such a thing, but it was like the thing.
0: Yeah. And then there and, was and... and there was crystal Jello too. Remember where the big thing was? You did it with Sprite, so it gave you little bubbles in the Jello. Is that what you did? That was a big thing in the 90s. Like, Crystal Jello was a big thing. Instead of using water, you used
1: Sprite, and it would capture the little air bubbles in it I to give it a different sign. I did that. I thought yeah. you were referring to something like Crystal Pepsi from the 90s, which is also a worthwhile... Delicious. It was one of my favorites. <laughs> I did like it. I was a big fan. <laughs> I did like it,
0: too. <laughs> if you spilled it on yourself, it didn't matter. It was clear. and had a little bit of a lime to it. I-, I liked it. I like Crystal Pepsi, too. It really is too bad.
1: Yeah. It really is too bad.
0: And Zima. Back in the days, Z- I Zima's never had Zima.
1: I never had Zima.
0: You're better because of it. Yeah. Okay. I had Zima. It was something like I don't know, it was it was a couple of years after its prime, and and I don't know if your parents had like the basement refrigerator that it had like it was like the island yes. of yes, of like did. the last two in a pack, and they had like two Zimas there, and there was like one night I tried it, and I'm like, this is disgusting. But but it was considered a like a drink that like the commercials always showed like this is a metropolitan beverage like it's fancy like people drink this in high rises with scarves and ascots like that's the way it was presented to us it was like this tasted horrible it was like a malt kind of a multi beer it was it was it was terrible i think they brought it back a couple years ago so
1: it well, didn't last Um uh, that is one to try at some point if they still manufacture that somewhere
0: well as far as dishes i'm going to be doing all the traditional stuff so yeah and uh, I will be using the InstaPot for mashed potatoes because I don't feel like there's a better way of doing it. So
1: I've never had it in, in an InstaPot. It's great.
0: Is it? I do mashed potatoes chantilly. That's the, that's my recipe for for mashed potatoes. So
1: wow. Uh, so it. I take it,
0: the chantilly cream in it. Uh, no, you you just do basically heavy whipping cream. Okay. And yeah, you you kind of whip it up to a foam and put it inside there and you bake it. It's it is light
1: in area. Highly recommend. Okay okay, noted uh, for those of you that enjoy mashed potatoes instead of um, the mashed parsnips or the taddiq, then you can be boring and make it in an instapot. <laughs> you can also <laughs> write the
0: show and we will get the recipe to you like if you if you take the time to send us an email we will get you the link to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We
1: like sharing our culinary uh, our culinary joys with everybody. Okay, so in addition to it being Thanksgiving week, how's about? It being Honorary Booster Week. Well, we, we can't
0: move on to booster news. It's not? not? It's not Frankovacor. I have to ask you a question.
1: But, yeah, okay.
0: Yeah, I go for yeah. It. I, I have to ask you. Have you seen, there was two big movies as of late. Sha- Shang-Chi came out, the new yeah. Marvel one. But then the last, James Bond for Craig, came yeah. out. Have you seen the latest Bond movie? I have seen no movies in...
1: At all. I'm lately. disappointed
0: in you. I'm really disappointed in you. One should be,
1: but it's, please tell me. Was it good?
0: I don't want to ruin it for everybody because I am notorious on the show for spoiling movies.
1: You spoil uh, everything, actually. I do.
0: But they're all 1990s movies. People who are listening to this show have seen the end of these movies. I mean, uh, but I will not ruin Bond. I will say that it was a good send off uh and I think it opened up a lot of really good possibilities it was it was a good time I highly recommend okay. both uh but okay. bond a little bit more because bond is uh is, was an important element of my childhood my first
1: bond was Pierce Brosnan so what was who was yours I saw them on video first so I think my first was actually well it was Roger Moore okay. I saw Roger Moore in um oh shoot it wasn't the man with the golden gun although I did see that one What was the one with Grace Jones in it? (sighs) I can't think of a right top of my head. We'll have to look it up at the break. Yeah, it was the one with Grace Grace Jones. Jones. Um, And then I got into the Sean Connerys and I saw like most of them. And then I think I might have seen the Timothy Dalton one. And then finally, yeah, right. Then finally I saw the Pierce Brosnan one. I thought Pierce Brosnan was a very good James Bond. Um, And then Daniel Craig, of course, later on. Yeah. I thought Daniel Craig did a great job. Pierce
0: Brosnan was my first. Goldeneye was my childhood. I watched Goldeneye. I mean, I've probably seen that a hundred times. So I'm a big fan of of him. I thought he did a great job. Now as the movies progressed, it got worse and worse. So um, I think his last one, it was not that great. And a lot of ad placement for Ford. So that was not good. So, but okay. Well, I I also want to point out a another great podcast. If you are a Bond listener, there is the James Bonding podcast with Matt Gorley and Matt Myra. Highly, highly recommend you listen to those guys. If you are a James Bond fan, uh, the show is back. They kind of cover before the movie came out, and then of course they uh, did it um, after the after they watched the movie. They rank and review everything. They they talk about the clothing, the Oh Cars, everything else like that. Highly recommend. I love their rating scale between 001 to 007 on on how they rate the movies. Uh, and Matt Gorley, and I, I really disagree with him. Uh, he is not a fan of Pierce Brosnan, and I am with... Uh, he was team. a good James Bond. I thought he was, he was a, a great James Bond. So, so
1: okay, I, I kept on thinking it was a time to kill, but that was the Matthew McConaughey movie based on the novel. It was a view to kill. View to kill. Roger and, That's and, a good one. Grace Jones. Yeah, it was yeah. a pretty good one. Yeah. That's yeah. what got me on under on, James Bond long yeah. time ago. I was little mini-me at the time. Yeah.
0: I didn't like him because he was too campy. He made a lot of jokes. He made about a lot of jokes. Yeah, I, I don't either. mind a little tie
1: straightening in my bond, but I don't want too much of it. Have you ever heard that there's a James Bond named George Lazenby? Yes. I don't think I've ever seen the George Lazenby James Bond movie. It's Or someone Lazenby. I think it's George. I think
0: with George, I think he I think uh I I always get so I think with him he did one and then he sort of rebelled at the time and he didn't want this clean cut James Bond sort of look, so he wanted to sort of connect himself to more of the hippie movement, and then he got axed. He only did one, and then it got pulled. Uh, but there's there, it's kind of an interesting history, and that's why I think the the James Bonding podcast is great because they because they go into a lot of interesting details. Like I had no idea um, for like Pierce Brosnan when you are a Bond uh you you have there's certain rules about when you can wear a tuxedo because that's iconic to the brand Mm, and so uh when he did i think pierce Brosnan did the what was the other film um where he's that art thief uh like
1: oceans 11 was that oceans 11 no uh it'll come to me it was a remake it was a remake was was renee russo in this yes yes yeah it's a guy's name. Yeah. His, uh, yeah I know Thomas movie. Crown this Affair. Happens- it was Trump- it was, it was Thomas Crown Affair. Look at us getting killed. Yeah, yeah. Good to so, have.
0: So, okay. so fun fact, Thomas Crown Affair, if you when you watch that movie, there's a scene where he's at like a fancy black tie event. His tie is not tied. And he's it's a black tie event. Uh I guess that was intentional because of the licensing restrictions of when you're a bond. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, it's very, it's very interesting on the whole James Bond thing. But I highly recommend if you it's I think it's available for streaming. Uh, watch it. It's Daniel Craig's last hurrah. He does a good job. The acting's good. There's a couple of winks to all of you Bond fans out there. So highly, highly recommend. So, uh, I suppose, do, do we have to talk about the news? Do we have to go to the rundown? I, no, I, I we, suppose we, we no. do.
1: This is what you're supposed to do. Oh, you boosters. Asked me Yeah. You asked me about uh, Thanksgiving okay. instead of asking me how I was feeling. Oh, okay. And I would have done the same to you. And our audience would have learned very shortly thereafter that we both received boosters in the past 48 hours. Boosters! Ta-da. Yay! It's funny because on the show we were talking about whether or not to boost. Yeah. And uh, I was of the, yeah, don't, don't do it. It's not really necessary. Um, and then I went and saw my physician. And, and it's not a universally not necessary. It's necessary for people who need it. But for the under 50 crowd who don't have pre-existing conditions, the jury's still out. Um, but then I spoke to my physician and they said, like absolutely you should get the booster no question we are going to have a seasonal spike and you want to make sure that you are prepared for that so i heeded their warning and this was my physician not everybody's going to agree with you this is certainly something you want to find out for your individual case um and you do have a choice on this one but i went and i got the booster the other day and i'm still a little achy a little tired a little foggy I would say grumpy, but that probably happened before the booster. That's kind of my my, my general. There's right no now. change. There. There's no change in there's, that. Do I see? Do I seem the same to you? The booster doesn't have anything to do with that. <laughs> okay then. So, <laughs> little Miss Sunshine, tell me, how's the booster making you feel?
0: Uh so I so I want to I want to take it back. So I went last weekend. And it was a little bit of a production because here, you know, we get the link. We get the link from the county health department, and they book it. And there's sort of this like I heard the same thing from my doctors. Like, if you can get it, uh, you should, because they're they're sort of predicting a seasonal spike come the first part of December here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they're like if you can go ahead and do it and you book down the line and so they find the closest one with the best time and so they found it so so my appointment was at a Walgreens like one of those sketchy walgreens that's in a i think it was like an hour-long drive from me to go and so i was like okay fine like i don't mind doing a you know a quick road trip but so i get there there's like a broken down car outside like it was kind of a weird it was in a, it was in a weird neighborhood but I'm like eh, it's not the big deal but as i was sitting there waiting because i checked in i felt all the paperwork all that kind of stuff there was a person who was picking up some medication and it's a very small lobby so it's very easy to hear But this person is describing to the pharmacist, I'm picking up medication because I'm having um, issues with my stomach and I really having like some control. I have a fever, I'm throwing up. Like they're describing all these things that in relation to the medication that they're picking up and the whole time my eyes are getting bigger and bigger. Like, why are you in here? Like it's like you should be doing like drive up or something. So like all of us are like backing up and then like moving away for this person. And of course, they're like, well, you're, well, your prescription isn't ready yet. So you're going to need to wait for about 20 minutes. And all oh, of us no. are like moving away at that six foot mark. Um, So it was it was an interesting experience. But um, I got it. My arm was sore. I had no problems that night. But I I have noticed like I am starting to get a little achy. Uh, I'm getting I'm getting the chills. So, yeah, I, I'm, I am. I'm feeling something. That's for
1: sure. I will say that um for me, number two was way worse of a response and my second booster with Pfizer was way more uh, noticeable of a response than my booster. The booster was it was there and it wasn't it wasn't amazing like I wasn't so happy with it, but it wasn't terrible it, it was like malaise It was a lot of malaise and and achiness and grouchiness so, you know, I went similarly, very similarly to you, actually, to a Walgreens that I, I hadn't been to before that was a drive. And in fact, every shot that I've gotten, I could probably map it around LA and and it would give me some kind of weird connect the dots pattern at some point, because it just makes no sense where I've gone nowhere is near my home. And um, this one, <laughs> I get out of my car and a very uh, flustered and and just frayed mother was telling her kid and as calm a voice as possible. She's like, that means your mommy needs you to sit your ass down right now. Sit your ass down.
0: <laughs> and for the record, that's why we have an explicit warning on this podcast for this episode. Just, just want to call it out.
1: You know, well, well, we're not, well, we are not parents to <laughs> be able to witness that kind of frustration. For the- a parental <laughs> meltdown. I, I was like, oh, she's having a rough day she might've gotten the vaccine recently too. That's why, why she's uh, losing it, but it was funny. <laughs>
0: no, well, you should have, I mean, you're gonna have to like change the stitching on your cape or something, cause you should be super duper ready cause you've had COVID and you've had three pokes, yeah. so.
1: Yeah, 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 this is, this is a lot. I don't know when overdoing it actually is. Uh, you know, the Pfizer vaccine itself, they've shown that those antibodies decline quite a bit at six months and that's been in the news quite a lot lately. That is definitive that after six months, Pfizer or Moderna, but even Moderna too. Um, your, and, and certainly Johnson & Johnson, your antibodies really, they really decrease after six months. That six month point is an important point. So um, it's worthwhile to get that booster. And, uh, you know, just before I got that booster, I actually got a flu shot, uh, which was my brilliant move because I had one arm that was sore from flu and the other arm was sore from the, the COVID poke. And the flu one was a few days before I had gotten them in succession. And uh, the, the COVID poke re-irritated my opposite arm. So both of them made me kind of walk like Frankenstein's monster, even though <laughs> Halloween has long since passed. It, it was just for a day. It wasn't so bad. Yeah. Um, but it reminded me that, if you remember one of the stories we had on the show, was, it was the, I think it was the Novavax vaccine was trying to get approval to be used as this joint COVID flu uh, vaccine so that you could get it all done in one. Uh, and I thought like, is it really that important to do that? Do you really want to put them in the same exact dose? And when you do, you might remember registering for your booster, it asked you how many other vaccines do you want at that time? Like it was a big deal with especially yeah. the Walgreens questionnaire. Um, and then we get this story in the co and in, in the not really COVID corner, but in the COVID adjacent corner of, a massive influenza spread at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Yeah. So so, you know, in in the week of, of November eighth in Ann Arbor, there were something like 313 cases of influenza that were suddenly uh, reported. And of the people that were tested for influenza, something like thirty something percent came back positive. Well, and yeah, right. A lot. Not that they normally would run a flu test on someone, because if you have a flu, you have a flu. And I'm sure at that point, they're trying to rule out COVID or flu, and that they'd rather it be a flu than COVID, usually. Um, but it sounds nasty, and it actually garnered national health attention where they're sending in people from the federal government to figure out what in the world is going on here, that there was this big outbreak in Ann Arbor, which is a smallish city. It's a city, but it's not, it's not particularly large, you know, the University of Michigan's there, which is, which is probably the predominant amount of the population. Um, and the, you know, almost 80% of the individuals who had the flu, um, were unvaccinated for the flu. And if you look at the recommendations for what you do with the flu, they're exactly matching what they did with COVID. And this might be a snapshot of what our futures might look like in future winters, where not that the flu is suddenly more dangerous, it might be but I don't think that's the case. I think this was just particularly um, infectious and uh, flu mutates every season, and it will mutate again next season. Uh, but so does COVID. And, what we might actually be getting used to in this quasi-COVID corner is that during the winter months or during this time starting around November, at least in the northern hemisphere, we're probably going to see a spread of a number of things. And getting those vaccines, be it COVID or flu or a hybrid of the two of them, is a norm and it's probably going to be necessary to keep you safe because and healthy. Because those are some pretty impressive numbers in, in the sweeping flu. Uh, When's the last time you had a flu? Well, I had it about,
0: I want to say it had to be about 10 years ago. and That's a long time. Yeah. yeah, it was a long time ago, but I learned my lesson. So I got it, and it was one of those things. I mean, I was stupid. I was young, and um, I got it, and I and I was like, oh, this kind of feels like a cold. So I went to work, didn't even think about it, and I, I was wearing, like, a regular sort of, like, winter hat, and sweat was pouring down my face, and I was shaking I was just so cold, and so finally I go home. That the following day, my my mom was like, "Well, I'm going on a cruise, so like I'll see you later." And so I was by myself, and it was it was so terrible. And I had never I never experienced being that sick, where I'm just under tons of blankets, I'm shaking, I can't stop shaking, I'm freezing. It's like I have sweat porn out. It's like I was just in terrible, terrible shape. I'm like. Maybe I should get the flu shot. Like, this mm-hmm. this is enough to push. Because I was always like, oh, you know, who needs that? I'm young and strong, yada, yada, yada. And it took me out for about a week. And then from that point forward, I always got the flu shot. And, and I've had flu-like symptoms, but they've never hung around that long. But this mm-hmm. took me out for about a week. But I had never been that sick in my life where it's like I can't eat I can't sleep I can't keep anything down I'm you know I'm so cold yet you know, I'm dying of you know I have sw- it was absolutely terrible so yeah I, it has been that long and I get my flu shot religiously in the fall like I always have that standing appointment so
1: yeah and I started doing it, especially because I've got youngins like if I see my my uh, niece and nephews they're they're young like I don't want to bring in a, a flu or if I see my parents they're elderly like I don't want to give them the flu. So I, I am cognizant of it, but similarly, you might remember, um, I had started off in around a new year's party, getting ill and thinking I was better and then traveling to Colorado. Um, and after a rough night turned out I wasn't better. And then I visited you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for that. Uh, and I, and I have photos from that day. So. Yeah. I, when you described the sweating with some, with, with a hat on your head, I think that's exactly how I looked when yeah. I was, when I was visiting your house, I'm like, whoa, this is bad.
0: Well, in the flu, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it is fatal for some people when they contract. Yeah, the it flu. is
1: for some people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, usually it's, so my, I had a relative pass from this where they were just really elderly. They had so many health, uh, complications that it's the thing that pushes you over the edge. It, is very dehydrating. Um, it can lead to you know your, your organs shutting down. Um, it, you could get dangerously high fevers. You can get, I mean, there are things that have, that's, originally when COVID came through and it was described kind of like a flu, it was viewed that way that like, well, you know, if it's just another form of a flu, then it's not really that scary. It's just another form of a flu. But COVID's far worse than a flu, like way the heck worse than a flu. Um, but the, yeah, the, a flu can be fatal um, given the right situation, circumstances. It's not usually for younger, healthy folk. So, um, generally speaking, get your vaccines. That's all I need to say about that. Um, and wear that, your masks, wear your masks and, and wear your mask. Well, that's the other thing with the flu. You should start wearing your masks too. It's not a bad idea. People will appreciate it. Um, so that you don't cough on them or as Matt mentioned, go to Walgreens, making everybody worried that you had something that you wanted to transmit to anyone. Cause even if it's not COVID, you still don't want whatever they have.
0: I felt better. We were all masked. I felt more comfortable yeah. than if we weren't. I mean, I, I think it's great that we were all masked. It's, it's it certainly, still caused me some concern, but we were all prepared, you know, and it's, it's cold
1: and flu season, you know? Yep. Absolutely. All right. With that, go take your cold and flu season break. We will be back right after that. And you hear a word from our sponsors.
0: This week's episode is brought to you by Wet Panda Dry Bags. You know, it's pretty basic to think about dry bags, but it's so important You know, when we're headed out to paddleboard or we're headed out to hike, Um, I reach for my dry bag all the time because, you know, I have a digital camera, I have different equipment with me, and I am not always confident that my backpack is completely waterproof. So I just tuck it into my dry bag and I know that it's going to stay safe. And I even pack a wet panda bag in my gym bag because, you know, if I'm swimming, I can toss my swimming suit into the dry bag and close it up. And I know that the rest of my bag isn't going to get wet and nasty. So check out wet panda. They are exclusively sold on eBay. Just search wet panda dry bags and look for that panda paw thank you so much wet panda for your sponsorship of the sunday brunch
1: and we're back uh we just gave you a break to contemplate when you're getting your flu shot if you haven't gotten it yet and your covid booster if you can and if you're eligible and if you want to um but with that i wanted to change gears and ask matt matt what kind of crap is flying around space right now <laughs>
0: Yeah, so this really dominated the news quite a bit, and this has a little bit of a tech angle to it. So, of course, I think everybody knows we have a lot of junk flying around um, orbiting Earth. We have, you know, and new stuff being added all the time. We have Elon Musk Starlink, which... There's a lot of these low orbiting satellites. We also just have a lot of old satellites that are running around. And then we also have a space station, right? That this big international space station, which was a big deal when I was a kid because we had tons of photos. It was very exciting that Mm -hmm. we were all working collaboratively to build a space station. But when you have junk that is flying around and orbiting Earth, which if you've seen WALL-E, it kind of makes fun of it when they're like flying through the atmosphere and there's just tons of junk up there. Um, It hits stuff. If you've ever seen the movie Gravity, uh, you get to see a little picture of that, that when junk is flying around, it can damage things. So um, at the time of this recording, I know that this will probably evolve and change. But there was kind of two big stories. One, a piece of space junk hit the arm of the uh, International Space Station. So these things are flying around at pretty high speeds. Um, I know that we try to track these things, but stuff happens and collisions occur. Um, also this week, it was it was basically confirmed that it appears that Russia launched a surface-to-space missile to deal with space junk. Um, and I'm I'm going to butcher this. Plestek Cosmodrome um, in the northern part of Russia. Um, they fired off a missile to destroy an older satellite. Um, it was this satellite called Cosmos 1408, and it was launched in the 1980s. And this satellite had been slowly losing altitude and they blew it up. But what happened was, is when they blew this thing up, it of course created lots of space junk that is now floating around. Um, And you can have thousands of pieces of stuff just orbiting around with not a great way of stopping it. So it really brought a lot of attention this week to space junk. Like, what are we going to do with this stuff? Because once it goes up, you know, sometimes you can get it down and it'll burn up, which we've seen that, I think it was what, Space Lab, we did that too, where it's like we just brought it down and it vaporized. Um, we've seen other sort of satellites that have but we still have a lot of stuff that's out there. And collisions are going to occur, the more stuff that we add. There was, um, you know, when Elon brought up Starlink, or now we have Amazon, that's also gonna be launching some satellites. One of the criticisms of this is it's sort of polluting um, space around Earth, you know, and we're starting to see more and more of these satellites out there in orbit. So um, I was just kind of curious, you know, this week there was a lot of focus on the International Space Station, which we don't hear a ton of updates on. But what was your thoughts about this idea that we have so much space junk from the 1980s still in
1: orbit? It reminded me of like those stories about the ocean where you see the islands of floating Junk that that yeah. have have been left there by us, kind of depressing. Like we can't escape our own wastefulness, no matter where it is. Granted, I don't see myself going up in this space anytime soon, but I, I don't know. Like it just hit me as dystopian. Yeah. Not not that this has to be a a lesson in and do goodness, but it, it it yeah. I, I kind of feel like oh man. <laughs> yeah, it's like we have a polluted planet, and we have stuff polluting the orbit
0: of our planet. It's yeah, we've yeah. gone everywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, it was just it was an interesting story, and so there, it sort of spurred a lot of conversation. So a little bit of a tech angle. Uh, there was a couple write ups around sort of the technology that uses to track space junk, but when we have countries that are blowing up satellites. That's kind of unexpected because we're not looking for something to be destroyed. And then all of a sudden it destroys. And like a firework, all of a sudden a thousand pieces kind of shoot out. So uh, yeah. certainly uh, a very interesting space story. It wasn't about robots because you know I'm always partial robot stories. I wish you had a robot story in outer <laughs> space. I got nothing. I still haven't gotten a call for my astro robot. but Now, another interesting story that came out is pinch to zoom and should it be allowed...
1: Uh in a trial. So uh, It's I don't, a question of his claim of self-defense, it's alleged, isn't it? I, I
0: forget what the rules are from Pot if, if we're supposed to say it until the jury's finished it. So okay Okay. I, okay. I, I don't I, know I, lines of evidence. Yeah, yeah, I can roll with that. So um in like most trials, we are seeing a lot of surveillance technology. Uh you know, in and, and particularly in the Rittenhouse uh trial, there was drone footage, there was all kinds of footage that that was involved. And this is once again, sort of this, there isn't a good understanding of how technology works. And during the course of this trial, um, the judge didn't allow, uh, because the pinch to zoom feature on an iPad. And there was a claim there, um, and you can see the full—I mean, the full coverage of this—is in Ars Technica. Is there was this thought that if you pinch to zoom, that the algorithms, which they, mis- they mispronounced algorithms during this whole whole conversation, they felt like the all that, that the algorithms were manipulating the photo. And so there was a quite a kind of a spur of conversation between multiple parties around can pinch to zoom, which is a very common feature. We have this in Droid, we have this in the Apple devices around like it's very easy to zoom in on video. We do it all the time. And so, but there was a lot of discussion around is Apple sort of, adjusting this with algorithms are they adding pixels there was even some conversation around what software was used and they were talking about the video that was in evidence versus the video that is shown to the jury Uh, they actually ended up connecting um, the video uh, specifically with this drone footage to a TV that was running Windows so that they could air some of this footage and so um, it was just sort of an interesting idea right now that uh, you know, we're doing more of these photographs that use um, sort of this idea of computational photography, where your your phone is taking multiple pictures and there is an AI component that's that's sort of blending it to take the best photo. And so computational f- photography has been a big discussion point in like a lot of like the Google Pixel phones. We also see this in the Apple phones of, we really want a good photograph. But sort of this legal question, which I don't think the people who brought this up were really thinking about computational photography. I don't think that they were thinking at that sort of depth. But it sort of spurts some interesting conversation in the tech world around, is a photo you take truly that photo, or is it the AI-adjusting the best possible photo that's taken, because during this dialogue about pinch to zoom and those type of things, we do see algorithms, we do see technology sort of optimizes photo to make it better. Pinch to zoom doesn't change anything, but if you take a series of photos and then it, it adjusts them and it's used for evidence, um, you know, is there any sort of questions there or what software is being used to you know to adjust it? And so um, I was just kind of curious on the you know on on your take on this around you know pinch to zoom. I mean when they were saying, well, this adjusts this, this is altering it. um, I felt like it was just a regular like zoom in. It's not really adjusting it. Um, They called in some expert testimony, but what
1: was your take on this? You know, you know, what's interesting about this is for a while in scientific publications, long before this happened, there was a question of, if you could Photoshop something that shows the same image, but with greater clarity, are you allowed to put it in a journal article? And the answer is yes. Like you are allowed to do that because the point is you're trying to amplify the message that's given that when you reproduce an image that's not with your naked eye, that's going to go through photo distortions anyway, then why can't you go back and brush it up? The problem is with the integrity of, of the person doing the adjusting or the program doing the adjusting, it might, it might not a hundred percent of the time be, be, uh, have fidelity to the original image the way that you'd want it. Um, I think for this case, this should always be looked at as a case-by-case basis. I think for this case, I don't think that's an issue. As you said, you're not really doing anything that's... you're not falsifying the image. Um, But for some cases, in, in a theoretically feasible way, could that possibly happen with a number of different distortions? Yeah, even if it's unintentional, sure but you always have the option of looking at the original image with the or the 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 raw data for the image rather than the one that was used to integrate it and you could put them side by side and see where it is and we also have options of doing different iterations of the raw data integrated in different ways to see, well, are there other interpretations of this? Like, I think at some point, if there are these kinds of computed images, then just like life, when there are different perspectives on the same thing and different eyes see different things depending on the angle, we might be able to reconstruct all the different angles and figure out, OK, well, if 9 out of 10 show this one thing, is 1 out of 10 enough evidence to tell us that that's beyond a reasonable doubt? and. I don't again i don't think that the case of the written house evidence is that i think it's a lot more simple and i don't think that the evidence is inadmissible but um i i do think that it does pose an interesting thing to think about that scientists have been thinking about for a long time and that's you can't falsify an image but you can amplify it to show what the crux of the image actually is telling you
0: yeah i agree and and yeah and just to clarify so um, with Rittenhouse is lawyers are arguing, and, and again, at the time for recording, we, we don't have, uh, the, the jury's not back, but that he was acting in self-defense when he shot three people. Um, and so that is what he's currently arguing. And again, we don't have the results on that on that yet. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, and I think when it comes to drone footage, body-worn cameras, personally owned phones, um, I, I think this is going to come up more and more. Uh, because people are going to say, well, was this photo adjusted? Um, and a lot of times it is, it's cropped, it's adjusted, it's zoomed in. So I think that there's going to be a little bit of that. Um, but I think we have the tools necessary to sort of uh, maintain the chain of evidence, which I think in this case, it, it did come up because there was some, some testimony where they're like, no, what's in evidence is in evidence. Um, but I also think too, it's like, if it's a long video, I could see them taking clips. Like, it makes sense. We're going to show you a clip of this. or We're going to show you a clip of that. Do you want to see the entire drone footage? And I think in cases like this, we want these tools to catch bad guys. I mean, we want, to, if you can have a drone footage or, or other people's camera footage or buy one camera, th- this is what helps us um, figure out what the truth is, you know? And so, but, but this computational photography and the ability to sort of blend and adjust, and of course, a lot of dialogue this week around deep fakes of like, you know, Right, Like right. I mean, between you and I, there's enough of our voice. Somebody could probably replicate something that- If you're going to say between the two of us, <laughs> Why would you share that with everybody? (laughs) Well, it's simply because we have enough podcast episodes. There's a lot of audio of us talking. Um, so, so it's pretty easy to, to sort of figure out that, that baseline type of thing. So, so yeah, so it was definitely a very interesting sort of tech rabbit hole around pinch to zoom and, uh, and yeah, and just people trying to understand how this technology works and the fear that people were manipulating and changing the, uh, photograph. So yeah, it was, it was certainly an interesting story. I I am wanting to talk to you a little bit about, but this genome
1: pilot, uh, what's, what's going on with that? Yeah, so the 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 medicine stories today are interesting because they're both i mean granted there's a gazillion stories you could talk about medicine but um they're they're kind of at this interface of tech and medicine and one of them is a genome study that came out pretty recently um, in the new england journal of medicine there was a preliminary report uh, back from november 11th about a hundred thousand genomes pilot. It's a project um, in the UK on rare disease diagnosis in healthcare. And it was a preliminary report. So, okay, some, some background on this. Um, in, the, in the West, you know, there's a certain percentage, not huge, it's like, I don't know, between like one and five, I think, percent of people will have some kind of rare disease. Um, most of these rare diseases, 80% of them you can find with a genetic cause. Uh, And if that genetic cause is a single mutation that's been pointed out, or it's a complex factor of a pre-existing mutation that makes it more likely, given a certain environment, to be expressed, like a stressful one, like if Bruce Banner becomes the Hulk, or um, you have exposure to a certain uh, toxin later or uh, a chemical of sorts that you, you happen to come across through eating. Like, there are some weird things that could happen that trigger something. Um, so a lot of times when people have a rare disorder, your doctors have no idea how to determine that that's the disorder that you have because they don't expect it. There's a saying in medicine that when you hear hooves, think horses, not zebras, and that's because every medical student learns about a lot of the less common diseases. And the first time that they're in their residency or they're seeing patients and they're shadowing in, in, in a clinic or something that, you know, someone comes in with, you know, a fever and uh, and they're like, oh, it must be Rocky Mountain spotted fever. <laughs> like, you know, what, what, you know it, it could be a million things. Just relax a little. It's probably just a blank or it's, you know, um, cause you don't want to go that route unless you need to. But a rare disease is usually the last thing that people will look into. It's when you throw up your hands and say, I don't know what this is. And it might be one of these other things. Isn't that when you call House? Well, that's exactly what he does. It's, it's, but one of the things that House does, which has made him so entertaining, was that he could always tell from the workup um, of of correlates, of physiological correlates, like, oh, well, when your hematocrit is at this level and your uh, CBC is, is is giving us white blood cells at this level and your uh, liver enzymes of A, Z, T are at this level. And like, then he knows exactly what it is. Um, lupus and a, biopsies. There was a lot of lupus and biopsies at that Well, lupus is a diagnosis of exclusion. So when they can't figure out what it is and you have a bunch of weird symptoms. And sometimes if you happen to have, there's this butterfly um, kind of skin uh, reaction that you can have, I think it's on your face. Um, then that's very telltale lupus. A lot of times lupus is diagnosed because I can't figure else out what it is. Um, but this rare diagnosis kind of thing, this, this rare thing, because most of them still come from genetics, the UK had used through their National Health Service a push to look at all the genomes of people who hadn't been diagnosed still, but might have something that's rare. And they found quite a few of them actually did have mutations. So they had, I think, uh, 4,700 participants or so. And um, they found 161 disorders. And some of them were from the same family. And of those disorders, about 35%, they found that there was like a single gene that was responsible for it or a mutation in a single locus that was responsible for it about 10% of them have more complex uh, cause. So it'd be a mixture of a gene and an environment. Um, but the whole point of all of this wasn't to say that they, well, maybe it was to say, I don't think so. I, it, it wasn't to say that um, there are rare mutations because they found a few new, new mutations, which was useful for some, for some disorders. Um, it was to say that this could be the future of healthcare that we are able to use new technology to start going through everybody's genomes. And because of that, if we can do full genome sequencing, then we will be able to determine if there is something weird going on, like mutations in certain areas, probably not a first line of defense because we all have mutations, we all do. Um, But if your mutation is linked to some other rare disorders and your symptoms match with that, well then, there's a conversation to be had, and when people go through these kinds of um, struggles with, like, I don't know what's wrong with me, there's a lot of gaslighting that takes place. You know, you're 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 taught to believe that it's all in your head. Um, you spend tons on medical bills. You end up going through anybody that can help you. Like this is we talked about the the turmeric thing, right? Like you take turmeric for whatever's ailing you because that's better than anything else you've gotten because nobody really knows what it is or or essential Um, oils a lot of people push yeah i mean there there are a lot of things that people will do anything to just find some kind of relief and a diagnosis is very relieving unto itself so um the uk is looking to to look at and it's a big project that they're running across the country on this hundred thousand genomes and this was a pilot of it Um, and that was to see if they could do genome sequencing, um, with undiagnosed rare diseases so they could start to use this, um, as it's called next generation sequencing, um, to diagnose rare diseases, um, in the future. And we're probably not there yet, but it also kind of speaks to the ways that the, that Europe was different than the United States in COVID. Remember. When they sequence a virus, they're essentially doing the same kind of sequencing. They're looking at the genetic sequence of a the virus, they're looking at the genome wide sequence, which is going to be longer than that of a virus. Um, but that's where their eggs are in that basket. Like, there's a lot of effort that's been put into the infrastructure for genetic sequencing in Europe in general. Um, in the US, we certainly have the capabilities to do it. Uh, I don't know if we're going to go back into that direction or not but we might wait and take note from how this goes in the United Kingdom to see how it works in the, in the United States itself. But it's a really interesting mix of how technology could shape healthcare in the future. And in similar ways, we do need a good science fiction novel or a bioethicist to start coming up with Gattaca kinds of questions from all of this, just for the reference. Did you ever see that movie? Of course, yeah. Thank you. Oh, I do it's have great faith movie. again great in movie. humanity, yeah.
0: So I have a quick question for you. you know, particularly during COVID, there's been a lot of uh, fear around the technology that took to develop the vaccine. Um, Mm -hmm. This is pretty bleeding edge stuff. What is, you know, when you pull out the Dr. Marty crystal ball, do you expect that when this becomes more mainstream, are you do you predict sort of a hesitancy to utilize this kind of technology cuz this is data i mean this is your genome that's being compared against databases yeah. there's hesitancy about you know mrna technology we're not we're not great with mrna or spike we're not we're not good at that stuff right now there's still a big group of people that's very fearful of advances in medical technology so i was just kind of curious what your perspective is when this becomes more mainstream
1: you know it's interesting people are really not that afraid to do ancestry.com or 23andme in which There is now public knowledge or at least knowledge that people you'd never want to meet will have access to your family trees and that people you've never met and so that you can you can do that and people do that without thinking twice about it um whereas this kind of thing probably will will ruffle more feathers um it certainly is dangerous if all of your genetic data is open to anybody, because that is no longer under your control. And I think we're gonna just have to admit that when you relinquish control of your data, um, it's not safe. That That's that's unreasonable to believe that it's actually safe. No matter how many guarantees people can tell you, it can't actually be safe, because at the end of the day, people are responsible for that, and people make errors, and people can be corrupted, and you know, like it's, it's not a clean thing. Um, I believe at some point we're not gonna care anymore, uh, but we also have to be really smart in how we unfurl this so that you don't have a sudden um, spike in your insurance premiums because something was found out about a rare genetic disease that exists in because of a mutation that you have, even though you might not have symptoms. Uh, that, you know, like you... You didn't ask for that. You're not seeking medical care, but you've now been given a scarlet letter uh, that you you can that you have something that you carry with you. And most of us really do carry weird stuff with us. A lot of it never manifests into anything that's that's pathological or clinical that we notice, uh, so, and because a lot of stuff is, is got a complex phenotype. Rare diseases tend to be, you know, monogenic. They have the one gene that causes them. Although there are other kinds of them too. The more common stuff usually is a factor of genes, but even so, you know, you start with the rare genes because that'll give you the interesting data, but if you start doing this whole genome sequencing for everything, um, I think we're going to have to have the appropriate ethicists working on these kinds of questions to help us guide policies um, so that we don't go in this like the American versions of our internet privacy did in the past. Like we should go in the European route on this one to be very transparent, to have a lot of patient protection, to have those kinds of things that are set up and rules by which you can, can't um, kind of normalize ways to do things rather than just push the button because everything is bright and shiny and convenient and necessary at a certain point that everybody just gives everything away and you don't care about it anymore. So, yeah, it brings an interesting era. Yeah. Have you done the 23andMe thing yet? I had a relative who did. Someone in my yeah. immediate family did. Yeah. So um, you know, at that point, I'm probably linked to a number of people, and in some ways, it actually can be a little dicey. It can be a little dicey.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. There's been a number. I mean, and people do it for their pets. Like they want to know, you right. know, what are you Shiva Inu or Golden Retriever? Yeah, yeah, they want to do that, which is which is sort of interesting, you know. But I've the privacy part of me. And if you ever read the terms and conditions of Twenty Three and Me or similar products that are out there, you're giving up that data. I mean, it's putting it out there, and yeah, yeah, you do the cotton swap. I mean, and I think it was like two or three years ago that was like a really popular gift. A lot of my friends were gifted that, and um, and and we have seen some good come out of it. I mean, there there was a couple stories over the past. uh, I think it was like since Twenty Three and Me got started. There's also a couple. There's another like open source version where law enforcement was able to make a match.
1: That's right. A lot, yes, that's common. The serial killers that you right. know, were, you know, un, un, uh, that they, they were still on the loose. They, st- yeah. closed those cases. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, it was it was a cold case, and all of a sudden they pumped in their DNA information, and then it and then it had a match. Yeah. Which, you know, like of course you and I haven't done anything bad. I mean that's that's not big, but 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 the privacy aspect of it. Uh, it's still really concerning. You know, and I and I've heard people in the technology world argue, you know, your fingerprints. You you know, you touch stuff out in public, your fingerprints are out there. I'm like, but it still seems different. It's like it's you know, submitting your information yeah, but, but to a you, private company.
1: You, yeah, but your fingerprints aren't going to affect health policy decisions right. or your rights necessarily for access to health care. Right. Um, which, you know, the, the reality is before there was the Obamacare movement, um there was there was a, there were a lot of ways in which you couldn't have a pre-existing condition if you also wanted healthcare. It was it was unaffordable to you. Yeah.
0: Well, and I think you know, the positive is 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 if there was this database that can map this and have and and if you're dealing with something that no one can seem to figure it out. You, I mean, I would assume that this wouldn't mean you're going to go see, you know, a diagnostician in a funky university, you know, hospital, teaching hospital like House MD. You would have this database that your doctor could plug this information into yeah. and they could say, yeah. hey, you know, you know, based on these markers, there's an 80 or 90 percent chance you have this thing. And it's like, um, you know, my take from this was, was ideally it gets you closer faster so you can get the problem hopefully well, fixed earlier.
1: And, well, OK, so also just to understand it. It's not that we don't have those capabilities now. If you come in looking like you've got something like Huntington's disease, um, and you have the symptoms of Huntington's disease, and your physician's like, I think you might have Huntington's disease, we'd need the confirmation by doing a sequence of an area of your genome that we can target, um, the targeted sequencing. That's not that uncommon. Like they know how to do that, and that could confirm the case, like they do with COVID essentially. Um, If, you are coming in with a set of symptoms like a headache, and then they just start with the whole genome sequencing. It's very different because they're not looking to confirm what, they, what the case is presenting as. They're now kind of diving into the ocean of your data and then seeing like, whoa, do you know that you have this too? Do you know that this is it? That can be tricky.
0: Well, do you think that like there will be early detection of
1: like cancer? Maybe out of this maybe. technology. I mean, th- so the benefits are there too. Certainly, this is what they do for like the BRCA1 and and BRCA2 genes for for women in breast cancer. Is they knew the region that made you much more likely to um, develop breast cancer if you had the mutations and. They can screen for those right away if you come from a family history of breast cancer. And if you do, then they often suggest a mastectomy or something along those lines, or, or they increase the number of mammograms that you have per year. So if you now don't have to be searching for the BRCA1, BRCA2, but you have everybody's genetic data available from birth or something like that, that you just, you just know how everything looks, um, then you can possibly help out earlier in life or you might be ready for something or you know you who knows what where all these things are i think it'll be interesting uh in some ways because not all of this is just going to be medical conditions there are genetics of behavior so uh, what if you happen to have you know genetic links to antisocial uh personality disorder yep that's me i'm antisocial yep no 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 antisocial personality disorder is like the is is usually the what we would call a sociopath. Oh, oh no,
0: I'm just sociopath. antisocial in general.
1: Okay, you're just saying right you're right. you don't have a personality disorder. There. Okay. Um, I think that's, that's the one. But you like you, you could find genetic links to certain things that are big gray areas, you don't know that person's gonna turn out that way. Like this might be for impulsiveness. You know, my child has the mutations to show huge impulsiveness, then what do you do? Do you do not allow that child into an elite school? Do you not allow that child to buy firearms? Do you not allow, like when they're adults, of course, do you not allow that child to um, have access to um, large groups of people? Like, who knows? So we do need to have ethicists really thinking about this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, we have Thanksgiving coming
0: up. Yeah. Which means Christmas is right around the corner. Yeah. Which means people are going to start buying stuff. So uh, any hot tech
1: on your list? I usually defer to you on this kind of stuff. I actually would call you up specifically and say, tell me what hot tech I need to be looking for. (laughs) How about you? Well,
0: we're probably going to do a show with some some good tech on it, but... Um, I think everyone knows that we're expecting to see some shortfalls. Uh, so you know things like the Google, the Google Pixel Six Pro, iPhone 13, all those things. Uh, we are seeing we are seeing some shortages, um, some limited availability depending on the color and the options and those type of things. So as we start approaching into the uh, gift giving season, which some people give gifts during Thanksgiving, uh, but we also yeah. have yeah. the big Black Friday. Uh, and cyber Monday, um, all those things are coming up. Uh, you know, people are telling me they're like, "Uh, you know, what do you think? I'll work on a list, but I, I don't think there's going to be a lot of availability, even game consoles, which are really popular with kids. Um, some of those really basic chips that are out there are really hard to come by. I mean, we're seeing this in cars, game consoles, phones, all those types of things. So if tech is on your list, Highly recommend you get those orders in as quickly as possible. Um, CNN Business reported that they're seeing these shortages um, that are really having major impacts for customers all over. And so uh, don't wait uh, until Black Friday. Like start start getting those orders in if you are really expecting to, uh, you know, open those gifts during the holidays. I know, you know, AirPods are really popular, those wireless earbuds, all those things are all really, really popular gifts start ordering them as soon as possible because, uh, you know, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of availability. I think we're also going to see some, we're going to continue to see some supply line, um, issues. You know, we, we still have many ships that are out there in the water waiting to be unloaded. And, um, it's really hard for these stores to, uh, you know, keep up with demand right now. So, um, so yeah, so if you have tech on your list, start making that list and ordering it now.
1: All right. Well, thank you for the public service announcements. Uh, I think that we could probably leave you with the call to be capitalist and order as much as you can, because that's how we celebrate the holidays. Um, We also leave you with the public service announcement again to be safe this holiday season, uh, especially in the large gatherings or the smaller gatherings that you have, do whatever you can to keep you and your loved ones healthy. Um, that includes, but isn't limited to, vaccines if you're comfortable getting them and you are not in a place where you uh, feel like that would be an unsafe decision. Go eat some brunch. After you eat some brunch, go eat some turkey. Um, have yourself a great Thanksgiving. And as always, go change the world. But before you do that, also um, subscribe, send us questions, all that other good stuff.
0: Thanks for listening to The Sunday Brunch. Before we go, show some love to our podcast by leaving us a review. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or you can check out our website at sundaybrunchpodcast.org. You can also reach out to the podcast via email at thesundaybrunchpod at gmail.com. That email address again is thesundaybrunchpod at gmail.com. You can also leave us a voicemail, and this is for U.S. callers only, at area code 970-627-7445. Again, that phone number is 970-627-7445. Thanks again, and we hope you will join us next week.